caring for one another. And it's not, it's not this church, not Christians here. Other churches, other Christians in other places could be in our area, could be persecuted Christians across the world. But the point is the deacon ministry is mainly going after Christians in the church. So here's what that might make you wonder. Some people might wonder, well, if the deacon ministry is mainly geared toward the church and towards Christians, what about the needy people of this world? So we want to care for the needs of the church, but what about the needy people of this world? And I hope to try to go after answering some of that over these next two Sundays, this Sunday and the next as we walk through, as we walk through the parable of this, this uh, story of the Good Samaritan. I want us to be a people that serve the world. You want that, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. It says, You are the light of the world. It says, Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want us to be that to the world, and I hope that you want that as well. And so I say from the front end, that's what we want. Okay, so now, as we talk today, again, I'm just giving you some background here as we walk in. As we talk today, as I give this charge from this passage of Scripture today, I encourage every single member of this church and every Christian in the room to let these things land on you as an individual. What must I do? What must I feel? Let it land on you as an individual. Because I think that we should be a church that's zealous for good works out into the world to meet the needy, uh, to meet the needs of this world. But I don't believe that it's something that should be done corporately through the deacon ministry. Now you might say, why? Okay, let me give you very quickly. Very quickly, why? Why shouldn't that be done in a corporate corporation, us making decisions together about the needs of the world through the deacon ministry? Why shouldn't it be? Two reasons. Number one is just the scriptures. What we have in the scriptures is examples of these people through the deacon ministry pulling their resources together at the end of Acts 2, at the end of Acts 4, they're pulling their resources together for the sake of the saints, for the sake of the church, so that you see at the end of Acts 2, at the end of Acts 4, that there was none among them who lacked anything. You see that in verse 75, they take care of their own widows. This is what you see, examples in the Bible, and yet you don't see any examples in the Scriptures of the church of Jesus, the local church, corporately pulling together these things to meet the needs of the world. You don't see that in the Scriptures. Now, does that mean that the early church didn't care for the needy of the world? Absolutely not. It does not mean that. It just means it didn't happen corporately through the deacon ministry. So that's reason number one is about. Reason number two is effectiveness. I want you to think about this. Okay? The effectiveness of us going after meeting the needs of the world corporately or as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that head out into the world as we go after this in, in all different spheres of life. Okay? Just think about this. What, what, is, what about effectiveness, okay? I want us to be a people that not only go after the needy of the world, but I want us to do it in the most effective way possible. I want to have the farthest reach. I want to help the people that are needy in this world the best way that we can help them. And I don't believe that that means corporately. So here's what that means. If somebody says, hey, I want to meet the needs of the world. I want to go after that, the poor, the impoverished, the hurting, the suffering of this world. I say, amen, me too. We want to do that too. Let's go. And they say, and then they say, so I think we need to do something corporate through the decommission. I say, why do you want to do it the least effective way? That's the least effective way. I want to do it the most effective way. So let me give you a quick example. Let's say you got a couple, Bob and Brenda. Okay? Couple Bob and Brenda, they're atheists, they're in the world. They're not saved, they're not Christians, they're in the world. Bob and Brenda. Okay? And they're and they're very impoverished, okay? They don't have anything. Okay? And and and, and Brenda's very, very sick. They're in a very hard time. And we want to meet them. We want to help them. We want to care for them. We want to love them. What is the best way to do that? Here's what I'm telling you. The more you get corporate on helping Bob and Brenda, it's less effective to meet their needs. You miss things, like the act of love that should go toward them, not just a corporate body that sends them something. They need more than just financial help. They need people that go to them and love them. Or when you, when you pull back into corporate, you miss that piece of it, which is preach the gospel and make disciples. They need that. They need holistic care, which does not happen when we go after that corporately. Do you see what I'm saying with the example of Bob and Brenda? So what I'm saying is I want us to be a people. They are full of compassion, like we're going to see in our passage today. 
full of compassion for a hurt and needy and suffering world. And I want us to be a people that lay down sacrificial service for a, a lost, needy, suffering, hungry world. I want us to go after that with everything that we have. And, and, and because of what's most effective, I want to encourage you today. Let these things land on you as an individual. Let them land on you. Not what are they going to do, what is my church going to do, but what are you going to do for the glory of God to meet the needs of this world? Okay? Everybody with me? Alright, so let me give you some direction where we're going. This, this is my aim over the next two weeks. So we're talking about over the next two weeks, this week and the next, serve the world from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Let me give you more specific what I want to do. I want to do three things. The first two will happen today, God willing, and the last one will happen next week. Number one is this. This is what I want to do from this passage. I want to talk about a heart of compassion for the world. Look at, look at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to jump ahead here and read verse 33. But a Samaritan, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. He came up on a broken and suffering man in the world. And when he saw him, he had compassion. That's internal. Something happened on the inside. And this man, this Samaritan, was full of compassion. I want us to be a people that feel it in our bones, compassion for the suffering of the world. That's number one. Number two is this. I want us to be a people that walk in sacrificial service to the world. That's external. As you read what he does in verses 33 through 35, we'll read it together in just a moment. As you read what he does, he not only feels it in his bones, but then he acts on it in a sacrifice. It cost him something to lay down his life to meet the needs of this hurting and suffering person. So I want us to go after those two things, and we're going to go after those today, okay? And then number three, we'll go after next week, which is specific needs in the world that demand our compassion and our sacrificial service. I want to talk about some specific needs flowing out of this passage of Scripture. Specific needs in our world that demand that we go after compassion, that we are filled with compassion and move towards sacrificial action and service toward them. Okay, These are things like uh, many things. We'll talk about it later. Abortion, modern day slavery, Poverty, sickness, and you could go on and on and on of the needs of this world. And we're going to talk about those things. Okay, so we're almost there. We're about to get to our passage. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do today with this passage of Scripture. We're about to read it. And here's what I'm not going to do. I will not give you gospelless moralism out of this passage, out of this Good Samaritan passage. Now, that's a very common mistake. I, I've, I've seen two main mistakes that have happened as people have talked to this passage of Scripture. And one of them is just this gospelist moralism. It's, it's to put a guilt trip on it that we got a lot of stuff, the world ain't got nothing, what you doing? And that's it. You're just motivated by this, this guilt. Like you just need to be good. You just need to act right. We're not just going to give. I'm not just going to give you. We're not going to look at just gospelist moralism today. No. I want to give you the gospel out of this passage. But... Let me give you the second thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to artificially plant the gospel into this passage. If it's not there, I'm not preaching. You understand that? And that's another mistake that gets made in this passage a lot. Which is, it's like, it's like, a, it's like symbolism run amok. It's like this symbolism that ought not to be there. It's like, it's just, you, know, you hear people say, uh, all of us are the dead man on the side of the road. And, and Jesus is the, uh, what he meant by this thing is Jesus is the, the real good Samaritan there. And then he takes him and cleans him up and takes him to the inn, which is the church. He did not intend these things. I'm not saying there's not some, there's not some parallels there. There's some neat things about the love of Christ. And I'm not saying that, but that's not his intention, okay? So I'm not going to artificially plant the gospel into this passage. It's just there. In fact, let me read the first verse. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Did you know that the Good Samaritan story flows out of the initial question was, How can I have eternal life? What can I do to have eternal life? You see, it's just in there. And, and, and let, me, let me take this as a chance, Kate. Let me take this as a chance just to say that this is how it always is. At least this is how we always want it to be. We have people tell us uh, at different times, and I'm encouraged by this, and, and I praise God for this, that they are thankful that they've noticed that the teaching of the Word of God at, at this church 
that is gospel-centered. It's always going back to the gospel of Jesus Christ as that which is of first importance. Well, let me just tell you something. We didn't plan that. That's not us artificially going, how can we wrap you know, the gospel around the Bible? We just want to tell you what it means. So if the Bible, if I teach a passage of Scripture, and the main meaning is stand on your head and bark like a dog, that's what I'm preaching. But if that's not the main meaning, if the gospel is just there, then that's what I want to bring to you. You understand that? So this is not a, a cool idea. Me and Dustin didn't come up with this. A gospel Coalition didn't come up with this. A different places to talk about gospel-centered preaching did not come up with this. This is just what does God's word mean? I just want to bring that to you today, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, we're about to move into this passage. Verse 25 through 37. Verse 25. And behold... A certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Alright, so this is the word of God. So what we're going to do starting off is we're going to walk into the background that's here. The background is verses 25 through 29. You get the background into which Jesus gives this Good Samaritan story. Okay, verse 25 through 29. So in this background, first thing we see is that there's a certain lawyer. There's a certain lawyer. Now this would have been an expert in the law. Not a lawyer like we think of today, but an expert in the law of Moses. An expert in the scriptures. This would have been a religious man that knew the scripture of God. An expert, a lawyer, an expert in the law. And he comes to Jesus with a very important question, and yet his motives are off. What was his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? That's a huge question. I think everybody in the room needs to ask yourself the question, what must you do to have eternal life? I hope everybody here has asked and answered that at some point. What? has to happen for me to have eternal life. And, and then, and then, we know that when he asks this question, even though it's very, very important, that it's coming from, a, it's coming from false motives. Because what does it say he was doing? It says he was testing him in verse 25. And that's never seen as a good thing throughout the New Testament. He is testing Jesus. And you go a step further, a little bit later, verse 29, it says, and he justified him. So he wants to justify himself. This is a man that wants to justify himself. This is a man that wants to test Jesus. He's got a very important question, but he's not saying it with a sincere motive. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to think about his motive here. Think about his question, actually. Think about his question. The lawyers all throughout the scripture are partnered up with the Pharisees. And I'm telling you that this man is walking and asking this question in the legalism of the Pharisees. In other words, he's saying, what must I do? 
And from his angle, what must I do to have eternal life? Or, or how, Jesus, how can I earn eternal life? He wants to know how he can earn it. He's walking in the legalism of the Pharisees. This is not a man that's coming to Jesus desperate over his sin. Desperate in need of forgiveness. Going, oh, I'm broken. Jesus, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against God. How in the world can I have eternal life? He's not a man like that. This is a man who wants to justify himself. This is a man that wants to test Jesus. And he's coming with that pharisaical, pharisaical legalism. How can I earn eternal life? Now, what's the problem with that mindset? You can't earn eternal life. Everything that you earn is eternal death. This man and us included. We've only earned eternal death. But he's saying, how can I earn eternal life? Now, how would you respond to that? If somebody came to you, when we leave here today, and they said, excuse me, how can I earn eternal life? What would you say to them? Would you enter into a time of, of this would be their first introduction to, it's only salvation, not by works, but by grace through faith. Is that what you would do? Something like that? I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't do this. He actually doesn't do this. Instead, Jesus goes after humbling this man. This man says, what must I do to earn eternal life? And Jesus sees that this man must be humbled in his sinful condition before he can come to a place to receive of the grace of God. God gives grace to the humble. This man doesn't see his sin. So Jesus doesn't come out and go immediately into salvation. It's not by works, but it's by grace through faith. He does something else. And so the first thing we see Jesus do in verse 26 is he takes him back to the source. He says, you're a lawyer, you know. What's written in the law? So he asked Jesus a question, what must I do to have eternal life? And he turns it back on him. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He took him straight back to the source. He asked him a question. You ever had anyone do this to you? Hey, could you tell me what the Bible teaches about? What, what, what do you see in the Word? Could you tell me about that? Yeah, give me some wisdom on this question. What, what, what do you see in the Word? It's a good habit to be in. And he takes him straight back to the source right here. What is written in the law. And the, and the lawyer gives a wonderful answer. He gives a perfect answer. You see it in verse 22 as he says, Here, here's what you must do. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And he lays up these two commandments and they're from two different places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. And he lays them before and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I must love God with everything I have, everything that I am, and love my neighbor as myself. He combines these two verses. Now, now Jesus has already said, for example, in Matthew 22, that these are the greatest commandments. He calls these the greatest commandments. You shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus says in, in, in other places in Scripture, many other places in Scripture, that these two Commandments, love God and love people, is a summary, it's a summation of the law. All the law is summed up. All of the law is summed up in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's important for everybody here to see this. That what just happened is he says, how can I earn eternal life? How can I earn eternal life? Well, what's your reading in the scripture? And he gives him the summation of the law. Now, in this culture... There's this, there's this pitting against almost like you have legalism and then you have love. Like we're not, the, we're not the legalists, we're those who love God and love people. But the reality is, is love God and love people is the summation of the law. If you say we are all about loving God and loving people, praise God for that in a sense. But there's another sense in which you say we have failed to love God and love people. We are all about the one that came and loved us who laid down his life for us. You get what I'm saying? No one's ever been saved by love God, love people. Why? Because you have failed. I have failed. And this man, this lawyer, has failed. So he gives him the summation of the law. So, essentially, how can I earn eternal life? And essentially he says, keep the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And look what Jesus says. Look how he responds. He says in verse 28, you have answered rightly. How could Jesus say that? I, I, 
that's not the right answer, right? How could he, how could he say, you have answered rightly? Why would he say that? Well, he said it because it's true. What the man is asking is, how can I earn it? Jesus says, all right, there it is. Love God with all your heart. They set the standard out. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you got it, brother. You got eternal life. It's no different than saying, how can I have eternal life? Well, pick up this church building. You couldn't do it. You would see that. You just could not do it. So that's the catch. So Jesus says to him, you are right in your answer, but the catch is no one has ever met this standard. Ever. But Jesus is going after humbling this man. So look what Jesus says in verse 28. Let's read the whole thing. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Okay, do this and you will live. So here's what's happening. This man came, he came to test Jesus. But suddenly he finds himself pinned to the wall and he's got the standard of God's law up against his life right now. Okay, now he's pinned to the wall. Now what should his response be in that moment? When he says, when he says that, when he says, you have answered rightly, do this and you'll have eternal life. Do this, obey these commands, obey, fulfill this law. What should be the lawyer's response in that moment? What should he say? What should he feel? And I'd say it'd be something like this. Jesus, if that's the standard, I am doomed. If that's the standard, I'm doomed. Is there another way, Jesus? Is there some other way outside of keeping the law? Because if the standard is love of God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbors myself, I am doomed. But he doesn't answer that way. But I want you to think about that. Think of how high that standard is. Love God with every undivided, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, undivided love to God at all times. Imagine that standard. I mean, is there one moment in your life, one single moment, where you have loved Him to the degree that He deserves to be loved? Have you ever done that? And every time you've walked in pride, every time you've disobeyed His Word, this is an expression of a lack of love for this God. Every single time. Think of how high the standard is. And think how sinful we are right in the midst of it. Or love your neighbor as yourself. Every moment of selfishness is not love for your neighbor. Every lie that you've told is not love for your neighbor. Every, think about it. As yourself, in the same way do to others, in the same way you would want to be done to you, you, we have failed, we have failed, we have failed. And the standard gets put before this man. And he ought to break down on his face and say, Lord Jesus, there's got to be another way. There's got to be Another way. So think about yourself. How do you stand before that standard? Love God. All your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is how the lawyer should respond, but how does he respond? Look at verse 29. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? So he must be, to some degree at least, feeling the pressure of God's standard landing on his back. Why? He feels the need to justify himself now. The standard's been put up. He's been pinned to the wall. Now his life in light of the standard of God's law. And, and now he, he begins to try to justify himself. He felt a need in himself. It looks like I'm going to have to justify myself here. And so he asked a silly, petty question to justify himself. He said, what's the definition of neighbor? What's the definition here? Sometimes being lost, this is what happens, right? If you, if you, sometimes, or sometimes getting lost and being lost in these little bitty details like this, this is what happens. It's a sign of disobedience. It seems like you're looking at the nitty-gritty details. What's the definition of neighbor? But the reality is disobedience to God. This is a similar thing that happened. Remember in John 4, the lady at the well? Jesus comes to her, exposes her sin, and after exposing her sin, she said, he says, I know you actually have five husbands, five husbands, so he exposes her sin, and her response is like, oh, I see you're a prophet. Hey, i got this little question. We worship over here, and they worship over there. What's up with that? She just, she just changes. Little, little crazy, silly, petty details, but, but really it's just unmasking disobedience. So, so rather than admitting that he has not met up to the standard, he begins to try to soften God's word soften God's standard so that he in some way might 
couldn't meet up to the standard. I think we need to beware of that. Beware of softening God's word and God's standard and softening God to the point that you've made up your own God in your own head who's always pleased with you. Beware of that. There's many people that go to the judgment seat. They go to the judgment before God. And the reality is they've never felt a need for a Savior because they have softened the God of the Bible. They made up their own God in their head. And that God knows their heart and is totally pleased with them. And then they face the real God in judgment and they go to hell forever. So beware of softening God's commands. Now, this is the place where Jesus now tells the good Samaritan. With that background, now he's going to tell the good Samaritan story in verses 30 through 35. So think about what's happening. The lawyer is trying to soften the standard. Well, who's my neighbor? Who exactly you know you want me to love? You know? He's trying to soften the standard. But Jesus is going to heighten the standard through the Good Samaritan story to an unattainable place. That's what this story is about. This story is going to describe what does it mean to love your neighbors yourself. The standard is love your neighbors yourself. You haven't met it, but you're trying to, you're trying to soften it. So let me show you what it means by this story of the Good Samaritan. And it's going to take it, it's going to heighten that standard to an unreachable place. Now I want you to notice real quick before we read this again. Notice Jesus never really answers the man's question. The man's question is, well, who is my neighbor? And it's almost like Jesus just said, oh, that petty question, I'm not even answering that. And by the time you get to the end of the story, he, he doesn't tell him who his neighbor is. He says, be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. Which one of these were a neighbor? The Samaritan. You go and be like him. You go and do likewise. It's like he just skips over his petty question. And he goes after the heart to show his disobedience, okay? So let's read this again. I want to read verse 30 through 35. Listen, based off of what I just said, this new way of thinking about seeing this story, listen to it. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an end, took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So let me stop there. And whatever I will repay you, stop right there. So when you read this, there's supposed to be, there's supposed to be something that happens where you say, man, this, this command, the standard that he just put up is so radical, so extreme, that I don't know that I've ever loved anybody like that. I don't know that it's ever happened, especially not to all people. So, so this story, I love so Jesus, you know, off the cuff breaks out this story to help ex expose or describe or explain the commandment, the second greatest commandment to love your neighbors yourself. The first thing we see in this, in this uh, story is a road. You got a man, he's going on a road, on a path from Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? Now what's happening, this is a very familiar road. This man he's talking to would have known about this. This is a very infamous place. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very infamous place. Everybody knew about this. So he draws his attention to a very familiar place. Now they used to call it in that time the Bloody Way. The Bloody Way because it had a reputation for people going on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they were robbed and they were beaten and they were killed. It had a reputation. This is a bad part of town. It's about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho. It had a steep decline, and it was a winding road given many places for robbers and thieves and murderers to hide in caves and hide in certain places so that they could get in, do their, do their wicked business, and get out of there as quick as possible. Now this man, it says, he's jumped by a gang of thieves. So according to verse 30, this certain man going down this road is jumped by a gang of thieves. And they take all his stuff. They take all his possessions. They just strip him of it. They beat him senseless until he is bleeding and half dead. Try to imagine this scenario. They humiliate him. 
They strip him of his clothing, take his clothing and leave him there naked and half dead. They humiliate and harm this man. So now he's sitting there, he can't move. He's laying there in a pool of his own blood. He cannot move. He's in agony. He's in pain. He's in torture. And he's just laying there on this road. Now, think about the lawyer. The lawyer who's hearing this story. Now the lawyer who's hearing the story, at this point, he's, he's probably already getting a little bit pricked. He's getting a little bit pricked as he begins to ask himself these kind of questions, right? Like, okay, so Jesus is about to say that that's the neighbor. That's the neighbor, okay? And if Jesus is going to say that's the neighbor, i got to ask myself, would I be willing to help that person bleeding there on the side of the road, endanger my life? They, what if they jump me? What if they jump me? I mean, this has been very much so like... Um, a scenario where you walk down into inner city and down a dark alley somewhere you see someone laying down moaning and groaning they've just been beaten up beaten half to death and you ask yourself should I go in there? to that dark alley? should I help him? and so he's questioning himself he's already getting kind of pricked as he hears this as, the, as this lawyer hears what's going on here okay now so here's the man think about it in the story he's lying there in his pain He's suffering, he's helpless, he's dying. And then it says what happens in verse 31. A priest, a religious man comes. This is hopeful, right? A, a priest comes right here. And, and then it says the priest sees the man suffering. So it's not that he didn't see. It's not that he didn't know about it. He sees the man's suffering. And then what does he do? He just passes by. On the other side, he turns a blind eye to the suffering man, and he does nothing. He does nothing. Now, our lawyer, our lawyer here in the story, he would have felt a little stab to the heart right here. He would have felt a little stab to the heart, because, you know, he runs right there with this kind of people. This is his people. This is his religious people. He's a lawyer, an expert in the law. You got these Pharisees, and you got this priest. This, you know, this is his kind of people, this religious man. And yet he sees him, and he obviously shows not love, but disdain for this man. He doesn't love him. And so he's thinking, is Jesus, is this what Jesus is saying? There's a way you can be religious. There's a way you can be a lawyer. There's a way you can, you can be an expert in the law, and you can know these things and do all your little religious rituals, and yet the reality is, is you are not obeying this command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, and so the lawyer started to think that. Is he saying this is like me, this, fair, this, this uh, priest is like me? Next part of the story. Verse 32, then a Levite passes by. Now this is similar, right? Another religious man. Another religious person. Maybe this is like a, Levi's like a priest's assistant, okay? So another religious man passes by and he too turns a blind eye to an obviously needy person. And he just turns a blind, blind eye to it. And it's not that they don't know. They see it. It says it right there. They saw him. It makes it plain to us that they saw him. You know, you know the verse in uh, Proverbs 24, 11? It says, deliver those, deliver those who are drawn towards death. Rescue those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Do not say, we didn't know. God says, don't say that. And they in no way could say that they didn't know. So, so, so think about our lawyer again. Think about the lawyer here in the story. Again, I think he's cut deep again as Jesus prances before him another religious man. He puts him before. Look at this. Why too? Why not just say a priest and then a Samaritan? Why put a priest and then another religious man, a Levite, and then the Samaritan. Why show it that way? And I think he's driving the stake in. That you, you might have all your religious duties and all your religious stuff and all, all, your, all your, uh, your I's dotted and T's crossed and in the Bible, you got all this stuff. But where's your love? You are like these men. And so he's starting to think that. This guy's thinking, is Jesus saying that I'm like these religious men, this priest and this Levite? Am I like them? Cold-hearted? towards the suffering of this world. And then verse 33. Then a Samaritan passes by. Now this would have really cut our lawyer. The lawyer who's hearing the story, this would have cut him deep because as soon as he heard the word Samaritan, he's filled with hatred for this man. He cannot stand Samaritans. So here he is full of hatred toward this Samaritan. And what he doesn't realize is God is about to make the man that he hates the hero of love in the story. So Jesus is about to cut 
him deep with this one. Now this, this is true that they hated each other, Jews and Samaritans. They literally did. This went centuries back where Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. We even have a place in the scripture where these men want to say something, they want to say something ugly, something mean, something bad about Jesus. And what they come up with is, you Samaritan? That's what they call him, Samaritan. So apparently, these were a hated group of people. So, Jesus has got the lawyers. So think about this story, where we're going. Jesus has his lawyer. He's got him on the hook. He's got him on the hook. He's not obeying the second greatest commandment. And then Jesus is going to put before him a love flowing out of this hated, this hated Samaritan. Jesus is going to put before him a love flowing out of this man that just seems unattainable. And it should make him drop to his face and say, I can never meet that standard. How can anybody love like that? And really it should do that to all people. So let's look at this example of love. Okay, this, The love of the Good Samaritan. The radical, sacrificial, heartfelt, authentic love of the Good Samaritan is displayed right here. Okay, First it says, he saw them. And not like those religious men, he didn't turn a blind eye. He didn't turn a deaf ear. He saw them and he moved. He saw the man, the man suffering, and he moved toward him. And it says right there, in verse 33, he had compassion. Compassion welled up inside of him. This is an internal feeling. He felt something. He felt it in his gut when he saw this man suffering and dying on the side of the road. This is love. This is mercy. This is, the, this is the, following in the example of Jesus who over and over in the New Testament, in the Gospel, says he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion about Christ. And so this man feels it in his gut. But not only that, verse 34 says, and so he went to him. He acted on his compassion. You see, this mercy and this love, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not just an action. It's also a feeling of compassion in your soul. But it's also not just a feeling. It shows itself in action as he moves toward this man. In fact, he puts himself in danger. They beat this man down and took all his stuff. How does he know they won't do it to him? And yet he moves toward this man in this dangerous, in this, in this bad part of town. He moves toward this man. Then it says, he bandaged his wounds. This means he gets his hands dirty. He gets his hands bloody and nasty. As he gets down low and he bandages this man's Wounds. By the way, a man he doesn't even know. He doesn't even know this man. Then it says, pouring on oil and wine. Can you see his bloody hands? Rubbing on the, the wine for cleansing and the oil to soothe his pain. Can you see him rubbing those things on? Then it says, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end. Okay, so as if he's not done enough, as if his love has not been poured out enough, now, now he's going he's gonna to lift this man up. This man lying there naked in a pool of his own blood, he's going to lift him up and put him on his animal. Doesn't this Samaritan have things to do? Didn't it say he's on a journey? Doesn't he have stuff going on? And yet he lifts this man up with his own strength and sets him on his, what was probably a donkey. And then obviously he takes him to the end, so now this man's walking. He, he was riding. He was getting a ride on his animal. Now he's walking as this man, this poor, broken, suffering man, is on his animal and he's taking him to the end. And then it says at the end of verse 34, and took care of him. He took care of him. He didn't just leave him there. He became this man's servant. He became this man's slave, this man's caretaker. He served him. Now, did this, did this needy man, did he do anything to earn this kind of royal treatment? And obviously he didn't. This is free love, free grace, free mercy poured out to an undeserving man. All right, now, as if, that, as if that's not enough, this love that's just poured out, look at the next phrase. On the next day. This means he spent the night with this stranger. He spent the night with this man that he doesn't know, this broken and suffering man, and he stays the night with him, taking care of him, probably hearing his moaning and his groaning as he sits there in his agony. And he spends the night with this man. 
And then it says here, he took out two denarii. As if this is not enough, the love that he's poured out, now he's gonna, now he's gonna provide for this man. Now he's gonna give this man money. And this amount of money, this two denarii, this would have been enough to pay for his food and his shelter probably for about two months. People know that you can go back and there's, there's, there's evidence during this time period of how much it costs to be in an inn during this time. So you imagine that in modern day. I'm going to put this man up. I've cared for him and loved him. I've gotten my hands dirty. I've carried him. I've taken him to this inn. And now I'm going to put him up for a few months and take care of him, give him food and shelter. This is extravagant love. Extravagant love. This man counted obedience to the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbors yourself as, as greater value, as more important than his own stuff, even his own money. It's extravagant love. And then this last phrase here. Whatever more you spend, so, he's, so now he's looking at the innkeeper. And there, there's the man suffering. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. This means he plans to return. This is not just a, a, a short-lived visit to the homeless shelter. That he wants to take care of this man. He wants to meet his needs. He plans on coming back. And not only that, but he lays out a blank check. You're talking about putting yourself up for some, some issues with extortion here. He just, he just puts up the blank check. He says, whatever he needs, just take care of him. Feed him. Shelter him. Take care of this man until I return. And when, and when I get back, I'll repay whatever he needs. He just lays out the blank check. This is extravagant love. I want you to see it. Radical love. Costly love that this man pours out. Authentic compassion. Authentic love that is unheard of. It's unheard of. And as I meditate on that, and I think about the love that was poured out on this man from someone that doesn't know him, from someone who's undeserving, so from someone that probably when they wake up would hate Samaritans. And I think about that love that's been poured out, I think, man, have I, have I ever loved anyone this way? i failed to even love my wife consistently this way. Much less love your neighbors yourself. Love all people. You see the standard being heightened? Now here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to help. Jesus is going to help the lawyer apply this to his life in verses 36 through 37. Let me read it again. And this is the application. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So again, I love how Jesus changed the question. The man asks, well, you know, justify himself. Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the story and says, you go be a neighbor. Go be a neighbor. It says, he asked him, who is it that was a neighbor? He says, the one who showed mercy. It's almost like he can't even get it out of his mouth to say Samaritan. He says, just the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. He was the, he was the one. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now Jesus, for the second time, he's already said this one time, okay, do this and you'll have eternal life. The man tries to justify himself, he gives the story, and then he says it again. Now go and do likewise. So again, he pins this man to the wall, and he takes his life and puts it right up next to the standard of God, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For the second time, he's got this man pinned up like that. Now we're not told how the lawyer responds. We don't exactly know how he responds. But how should he respond right here? When Jesus looks at him and says, he's laid the standard out, he's explained it clearly, and he says, go and do likewise. Now what should this man do in that moment? How should he respond? And he should fall down before Jesus. He said, Jesus, I have never met that standard. I've never met that standard, and I will never be able to meet that standard, Lord Jesus. Is there any other way that I could have eternal life? And if he does that, you'll know that the law of God had done its work of humbling and convicting his soul. This man, should, he should respond like Job. Remember Job in Job 42, verse 6? He says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or he should respond like Peter in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Where he says, 
Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Or he should respond like those disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 26, when they said this. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? If you're telling me, go and do likewise. If this is the standard, who in the world could be saved? To which I think Jesus would respond, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you understand that verse in Scripture? Do you understand that? Think about this. Who then can be saved? Lord, if this is the standard, who in the world can be saved? And, and Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Man cannot save himself. This man comes to Jesus wanting to know, how can I, how can I earn eternal life? And Jesus puts the, the standard up before him to humble him. To show him you can't earn eternal life. A man can't do it. It's impossible with man to save himself. All our righteousness, the scripture says, is like a filthy rag. It's like a polluted garment. We can't save ourselves. But what about the next phrase? Who then can be saved? Well, with man it's impossible, but, but with God, all things are possible. Which means God has made a way that people that do not meet up to the standard could be saved through Jesus Christ. This is why he's here. This is why Jesus came. He came on a rescue mission. He came on a salvation mission. He came to save people that can't meet the standard. He came to save people that have rebelled against His standard, who never loved Him to the degree He deserves to be loved, who have never loved their fellow man to the degree that He demands of them. They've never done that, and yet He comes to save people like that. He dies on a bloody cross, crucified for our sins. We deserve to die, but He dies in our place. He tasted death for us all. Three days he's in the ground. He rises from the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior. And so I think he wants this man to see you can't meet up to the standard. But Christ is clear in God's word. Christ has come for salvation. He's the only hope. He's the only hope. So now, I, I believe that we've seen the heart of this passage. Okay, This is the heart of this passage of Scripture. This is the Jesus dealing with a lost lawyer. Okay? Now, I want to speak to everybody here who's in Christ Jesus, especially you who are members of Grace Community Church. I want to speak to you. I want us to use this passage now, and I think we can do this, use this passage to uh, examine our hearts of compassion. I want us to examine our hearts of compassion toward a lost world, like that good Samaritan, right? I want us to examine our sacrificial service to the world through this passage of Scripture. Okay, so the command, think about it. The command that was given that, that came into question was what? It's the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And to describe, to give you an illustration of how you can understand this command, he gives the, the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan story helps us understand how to obey the second greatest commandment. And yes, it's true that Jesus puts this before the man to show that he cannot meet the standard, that he can't obtain eternal life, he's not worthy, he can't do it. That's true, but at the same time, if you're here and you're in Christ, you are called to go after obeying this command, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and specifically to love your neighbor as yourself. You are charged to do that all over the Bible. One example is Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Where he says, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. For all the laws summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded all over God's word to go after love your neighbor as yourself. And the Good Samaritan story gives us a solid direction to go to understand how to do this, okay? So you're commanded. Yes, it's a high standard that you can't reach. It shows you your sin, your sin, it shows you your need for a savior. But at the same time, we are commanded to go after this. And we are empowered to do it. You realize that? You're not the same. If you're here and you're in Christ, you're not like you once were. You have now been empowered to go after. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Let me, show, let me show you a verse on that. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. Listen. This is an experience of salvation. I will give you a new heart. It's not like the old heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Why? And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You're in power. If you're here and you're in Christ, you're a member of Grace Community Church, you're in Christ Jesus, if you're here and that's you, anybody here who's saved, you have been empowered by a brand new heart and the Spirit of God who indwells you to go after obeying this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, let's get our attention. I, want to, I just want us to do this. As we talk about loving our neighbors ourselves, with the example of the Good Samaritan, I want us to get our mind on the world for a minute. To think about the world that's around us, especially the suffering, the suffering people of the world like we see in this passage. So let's get our minds on the world for just a second, okay? So we're talking about not serve the church. Remember that? Serve the church, serve the Lord. Not serve the church, but serve the world. The, the lost, spiritually dead, the hell-bound world. That's what we're talking about, okay? I just want you to think about the needs all around you in this hell-bound world. This all around. Think about it. Think about poverty-stricken people all over the world. Think about it. Think about that. Think about the orphans. Many neglected children, orphans in this world. Think about the thousands of innocent children taken into abortion businesses to be unjustly murdered every day in America. Think about it. Think about that. Think about the, the women involved in that and, and the ones who are in pain and desperate situations. Think about the hurting, suffering world. Think about the horror, the, the, the absolute horror of human slavery, human trafficking, sex trafficking going, all, going on all around us. Think about it. Think about those things for a minute. Think about the sick and the suffering all around us. Think about the, the drug addicted, the alcohol abusing people that fill up our prison systems. Think about the suffering world all around us. And let me ask you this question. How is your heart of compassion towards a suffering world all around you? Use this passage to do that. We know we're commanded to love our neighbors ourselves. We know that. We know this picture of the Good Samaritan is the illustration of that. How is your heart of compassion toward the world around you. Are, you. are you filled with compassion like the Good Samaritan, or has your love grown cold? Luke 10, 33, it says, He saw him. He saw him. Are your eyes open to the needs of the world all around you? Are your eyes open to it? Do you see it? Maybe it's not that you don't see. Maybe it's that you see it, you understand it, you hear the statistics, but you're unmoved by it. How is your heart of compassion? What if you prayed something like this? You know God wants you to be moved with compassion like Him, right? What if you prayed something like this? Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Or like this, God, fill me with the compassion that you have. Let me feel about these things the way that you feel, oh God. Or God, give me a heart that weeps for the poor, like you do. Give me a heart that weeps for these children being neglected, or these children being aborted and killed. Help me to weep over these things, God. Give me a heart that burns with indignation and anger like you do over the sin of sex trafficking. God, give me this compassion like you have. Let me feel what you feel. What if you prayed that? You think God would answer that prayer? This story of the Good Samaritan Explaining to us how to live out the second greatest command. This story is not teaching us that we should not beat and rob people. He just assumes you know that. But what it can be teaching us is that we should not be those that see these things and then turn a blind eye. To see these things and just turn a deaf ear to it like the priest 
and like the Levite. Think about this verse, Proverbs 28, verse 27. It says, He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. Or Proverbs 21, 13 says something similar. It says, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Jesus warns us about these things, about being religious and doing your religious things, showing up at your religious meetings, and yet missing the heart of the matter. Matthew 23, 23, right? You pay tithe of men and anise and cumin. You do that little thing, that's great. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Then he says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. He warns against being like this priest and Levite that does all the little rituals. And you're looking at your food or your drink and you get the little gnat out, the smallest unclean animal, but then you swallow a camel as you miss the largest of the large of all of the God's telling you. You miss the way to your matters. And I say, may we be a people that never push away and turn a blind eye to the ugliness of this world, but rather we move toward it in compassion and love and mercy. I long for that for us. I believe God's doing it, and I say, come do it more, Lord. Do it more. So that's the internal. That's the, I'm asking about your heart of compassion. Now let me ask you about the external. Are you living a life of sacrificial service? Toward the, toward the world. To live out the second greatest commandment, it's going to demand sacrifice. You know that, right? To live out the second greatest commandment, what I'm saying is it's going to cost you something. And, and if you want to honor God, and you see things right, you'll be okay with that. You know what? Remember David? He said, far be it from me to offer up to God that which costs me nothing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to offer to God. That was cost me. It's going to cost you something. If you want to obey the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, it is going to cost you something. There's going to be a sacrificial sacrifice, a sacrificial service involved here. So I want you to think about the Good Samaritan. Okay? Think about the Good Samaritan story. This Samaritan sacrificed his time. Think about it. Didn't he have somewhere to go? Didn't it say he was on a journey? And yet it says he went to him. And then he took him to the end, and he stayed with him. And then he told him, I'm coming back. He sacrificed his time. What are you doing with your time? You've got this command from God, second greatest commandment, love your neighbors yourself. Described to you by Karen, just like this good Samaritan, for the poor and needy of this world, what are you doing with your time? This Samaritan sacrificed his safety. He walked straight into a dangerous situation where he could have been jumped just so he could love on and care for this broken and suffering man. Obeying this command, I'm telling you, might take you into some dangerous places, right? Love your neighbors yourself. Do we idolize our safety in this culture? Do we lift up safety as an idol? This Samaritan sacrificed his comfort. His comfort. Think about it. Blood and dirt all over his clothes and all over his hands. He's walking and not riding. He's staying the night with this moaning man. He is, he is not comfortable. But he sacrifices his comfort. Now, I want you to think about it. You really think you'll be happy? You believe the lies of saying that, hey, this is what will make you happy? Get as comfortable as you can in this world and in this life right now. Or do you think hitting discomfort head on, face to face, will actually be what the Lord would have you to do? And actually you'll find the most joy there. The Samaritan sacrificed his money. He gave two denial and a blank check. He sacrificed his money. How, how are you doing with the love of money? Remember, remember what, the, what God said in his word? He says, like, you take a sword, and you, just, you love money, boom, you just stab yourself through. That's what you're doing. You're stabbing yourself through the heart when you love money. How are you doing with holding too tightly to the things that you have rather than holding loosely for the glory of God and for the love of my neighbor and all of this world? 
Obeying the second greatest commandment will cost you something. It will cost sacrifice. You better believe that. But listen, here's what's not true. It's not like you're going to be disappointed, right? Can you imagine that? Can you really see yourself holding that sweet little used-to-be orphan in your arms and going, man, I'm disappointed. Did you see yourself holding that almost aborted child with a mother who you're getting to share the gospel with? Did you see yourself sacrificing like that? Going through all, the, all that it costs you to do that? Did you see yourself doing that and being disappointed? Not if you're in Christ, you couldn't. Could you see yourself feeding the poor, those who are hungry in this world? Could you see yourself going after the needs of the world and meeting them and trying to lead people to Christ through that? Could you really see yourself sad? In doing that. Listen, listen to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 actually says the opposite. It actually says this is a means for your happiness. Isaiah 58 verse 6. Listen. Is this not the fast I've chosen? So here it is. This is what it looks like. To love your neighbors yourself. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. That you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring into your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. That's what the priest and Levi did. They hid themselves from their own flesh. But if you do those things, what? Verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noonday. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like the good Samaritan is a fight for happiness. Don't be convinced of the lie that if you hold on to all the things that you're going to have to sacrifice to love your neighbor as yourself that you're actually going to be happy. It's not true. Not for a Christian. Not for somebody that's in Christ. The Lord wouldn't let you be. Let me leave you with this last thing that Jesus says here. In, in the last verse, verse 37, this is how Jesus leaves you. Go and do likewise. So I, want to, I just want to close on this kind of practical charge. Go. He says, go and do likewise. To obey the second greatest commandment, you're going to have to go. Go and do. You cannot sit back and wait for the needy of this world to come and ask you for help. You're going to have to, what? Go and do. Like this good Samaritan. You're going to have to go and get your hands dirty. Go and express some energy on this thing. Titus 2.14 tells us that Jesus redeemed a people just for this. Listen, listen to Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. His own special people, listen, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. What good works are you zealous for? In the name of Christ who came and laid down His life for you and says, go love your neighbors yourself. What good works burn inside of you, boil up inside of you with zeal. I want to go do good works for my Savior to serve this world. What needs of the lost world are you passionate about? He's, he redeemed the people zealous for good works, right? What are you passionate about? What injustices in this world move you to plead the cause of the poor and needy with a fire in your bones? What are they? What are those needs? In my prayer for all of us, I'll read, read this final verse. My prayer for all of us is that we'd have the testimony of Job. Let this land on you. We want to serve the church and also want to serve the world. Let this land on you. Let it land on you. 
Not just the people around you, but on you. Job 29, 12. This is the testimony of Job. I delivered the poor who cried out. The fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. And I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Let me pray that over us, okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and dying for a bunch of people that could not meet the standard of your law. <coughs> thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us, Lord. But God, we see in your word that you said you redeemed us to be a people zealous for good works. God, fill us with this zeal. God, open our eyes. I pray, God, that you would take away blind spots where we have learned to be blind and turn a deaf ear to the needs of the world, God. Awaken us in that, Lord. God, I pray you do it today, you do it tomorrow, you do it this next week and for the rest of our lives, that you would awaken our hearts of compassion and love toward the needs of this world. God, we've seen you do that in different ways in our own souls. We're something that we didn't even, we didn't even felt nothing for, God. And all of a sudden, we feel compassion and love toward it because you worked that in us. God, please do that more in our church. Do that with us. Make us a people that loves our neighbors well. And God, I pray that you would use us. Give us this testimony of Job. Make us a people, God, that reach out a hand to the hurt suffering and needy of this world, God, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the glory of your gospel, for the worship of your name. God, make us a people that pluck the victim from the enemy's teeth. Thank you for your help, Lord. In Jesus' name.